that's the situation we're in when we're talking about these type of hour deference cases, because we're talking about rules that the agencies wrote themselves and are then interpreting themselves. There's a lot of concern of, are you really allowing the same person to be both judge, jury, and executioner in some ways? Are you falling into this kind of possibility of tyranny of the administrative state? Because there isn't that check. And so I think that's why there's an increasing interest on how this would play out. Now, the other side of that is that the agency wrote the rule. Therefore, they know how best what they meant by this vague word. You don't have kind of that gap like you do in a Chevron case between what Congress said and what an agency said. You have an agency interpreting what it meant when it said something. Welcome to the Mercatus Policy Download. I'm your host, Chad Reese. Deference is one of those magical words in the world of regulatory policy. Different types of deference play a huge role in how courts and federal agencies interact when it comes to deciding cases, and those cases in turn help shape federal policy on everything from healthcare to financial markets to environmental protection. I say that up front because we're about to dip our toes into the waters of administrative law. That's the branch of law that deals with how regulations are made. And I'm the only non-lawyer here at the table, so I reserve the right to interrupt and ask for clarifications as we go. That said, we're here today to talk about Kaiser v. Wilkie, a case currently before the U.S. Supreme Court. On paper, this is a case about the Department of Veterans Affairs' decision to deny a veteran benefits. James Kaiser is the veteran. Robert Wilkie is the secretary of the VA. But as with any case before the Supreme Court, more is at stake here than just the people named in the individual case. And here to explain why this case matters and what we know about it so far are two regulatory legal experts. First, I'm happy to welcome back to the show Jennifer Huddleston. Jennifer is a scholar here at Mercatus whose work often focuses on the intersection between technology and regulation. She's been on the download here before to talk about transportation innovation as well as data privacy. Welcome back, Jennifer. Thanks for having me again, Chad. Second, from all the way on the other side of the building, we're joined by Adam White. Adam is the executive director of the C. Boyden Gray Center for the Study of the Administrative State here at George Mason University's Antonin Scalia Law School. He's also a law professor there and wears a handful of other academic and policy hats. Thanks so much for joining us this morning, Adam. Well, thanks. It's great to be here. Let's dive right in. Why does one veteran's access to VA benefits have the potential to change regulatory policy in the United States? So what this case is really about is the question of our deference. Our deference is the type of deference that administrative agencies get when they're interpreting their own rules. As you can imagine, the administrative state governs a lot of different areas in policy, not just even the typical areas that we lawyers who who like to talk about admin law think of, like environmental issues and labor issues, but we're seeing a growing role of the administrative state in a lot of areas, particularly technology. Yeah, I agree. One of the great challenges of administrative law and administration is how should the courts and the agencies grapple with laws that are written in broad terms? And you see this with statutes that Congress writes that are written in broad terms. And then the agencies, when they come up with regulations, they're written in broad terms. And over time, as they try to implement these things, the question is, who gets the final word on what a broadly worded law means? And so you have doctrines like Chevron deference, which is not at issue in this case directly, but that's the deference that an agency gets when they're interpreting a statute that's passed by Congress. And then you have, as Jennifer said, uh, our deference, A-U-E-R deference. Sometimes it gets confusing. Um, (laughs) And an older precursor called Seminole Rock deference. And the basic bottom line of it is a court gives an agency deference to an agency's interpretation of its own regulation as long as the interpretation is not plainly erroneous or uh, contrary to the regulation. And what that means then is by and large in practice, agencies – 
interpretation of their own regulation is the final word. Courts overwhelmingly defer to this. And it raises real challenges because on the one hand, we live in a system where we expect the courts to say what the law is. On the other hand, we live in a system where we want policy judgments to be made by political actors, whether it's the executive branch or the legislative branch. And doctrines like our deference sit at the intersection of that. Who gets the final word over interpreting a law that has real policy implications? I want to dive into that idea. You mentioned that a lot of times these interpretations or the rules themselves or even the statutes are broadly written. And ideally, we wouldn't even need to think about these deference situations in a world where every law, every regulation, every interpretation was sort of, here are the very specific circumstances, here's what you do, here's a flow chart that commands every decision. So now, maybe this is an unfair question, but just to kind of get your all's opinion on our deference and this, this, this issue more broadly, is, is it a good thing that agencies right now have this deference because it allows them to write maybe regulations or interpret them in a little more broad fashion that lets them be more flexible and responsive to changes in the marketplace and in industries? Or is that a bad thing because it creates uncertainty and it makes it difficult to comply with regulations from a, from a regulated entity standpoint? Well, it's interesting because in this particular case, the word in question is relevant. So even if you've had a flowchart, the possibility of listing every single thing that could be relevant is basically impossible because it's going to so depend on the specifics of the situation. Also, when it comes to my area of technology, having that regulatory flexibility has been good in some cases. It's allowed agencies to work with new innovators instead of trying to shoehorn them into an existing box and preventing innovation from taking off. The concern for those of us that are kind of skeptical of our deference, and I would very much include myself in that camp, is at some point, people are going to disagree about these terms, things like relevant or even the or a or whether a fish <laughs> is a tangible object or all sorts of kind of crazy agency interpretations that can happen. That's why you all spend so many years in law school is to determine exactly what the means right, in a given sense. Right, exactly. And I think that those of us that are concerned about the way the courts defer to agencies are largely concerned that it doesn't feel like a fair fight when somebody goes up to challenge one of these interpretations. We certainly recognize that agencies are going to have to make decisions from time to time. But what the deference doctrine does is it kind of stacks the deck, so to speak, in favor of the agency's interpretation rather than allowing the court to kind of evenly consider both sides of a, a possible interpretation. Yeah. On this question of what to do with vague laws, um, on the one hand, I wish Congress would write more precise statutes and I wish agencies would write more precise regulations. But of course, there's always limits to what people can, lawmakers can anticipate in advance. And so I always try, when I introduce these concepts in the, when I teach administrative law across the, the building at George Mason, in fact, last night was our deference day. Oh, you know? wow. We're, we're taping this, I guess, on a Thursday. So on Wednesday yep. night was our deference day. I always have the students read Federalist 37. Um, and, I, you know, I can't, I come over here with, with my Federalist papers in tow. I'm going to take two copies of Hayek on my way back. <laughs> Fair trade. Right. But um, in Federalist 37, Madison is responding to accusations that the Constitution's own vague words are sort of a deliberate plot, right, to hide things from the public. And Madison says, no, the Constitution uses vague words. Because all laws are to some extent vague and they're vague is a sort of a very eloquent statement and in many ways sort of a little Hayekian, right? The, the idea that, that knowledge is imperfect. Any, any one person's knowledge is imperfect. We're grappling with complex concepts. In our mind, we're trying to reduce those concepts to 
human language, which is itself imperfect. And then we're conveying it to other people. And the way we convey it is imperfect. And the way any one person interprets what we've said is imperfect. And so over time, Madison says, the best meaning of a law will become clear through, he says, the meaning will be liquidated and ascertained through a series of discussions and adjudications. Right, and Madison. What he's saying is, there's always going to be at least some vagueness in laws. Some laws more than others, and coming to the best understanding of those words sometimes takes a little time. And so, in some ways, in it sort of in its best version, that's what deference doctrines do: is create space for the executive branch, especially, to help bring the law's sort of abstract meaning into a real practical place. That's the best version of deference. At its worst, though, what it does is it actually encourages or creates incentives for the law writer to write vague laws. And that's especially dangerous when the person writing the law is the same person enforcing and interpreting the law, namely the agency. And that's the situation we're in when we're talking about these type of our deference cases, because we're talking about rules that the agencies wrote themselves and are then interpreting themselves There's a lot of concern of are you really allowing the same person to be both judge, jury, and executioner in some ways? Are you, you know, falling into this kind of possibility of tyranny of the administrative state because there isn't that check? And so I think that's why there's an an increasing interest on how this would play out. Now, the other side of that is that the agency wrote the rule, that therefore they know how best what they meant by this vague word. You don't have kind of that that gap like you do in a Chevron case between what Congress said and what an agency said. You have an agency interpreting what it meant when it said something. The history of this is interesting. Just as recently as 1997, Justice Scalia, he writes the Hour opinion. It's a unanimous opinion. Um, The court says, yeah, we give utmost deference to an agency's interpretation of its own regulation. And a few years after that, there's an interesting law review article by one of Scalia's own former clerks, now dean of the Harvard Law School, John Manning, where he makes this point that in our system, we presume that one actor writes the law, one actor enforces the law, and one actor adjudicates cases and interprets the law. And our deference in some ways seems to, as, as Jennifer said, sort of collapses those those categories. And so you flash forward to 2011, so not even 20 years after the Hour case is decided, and Justice Scalia sort of shocks everybody by issuing this opinion, a separate opinion in a case called Talk America versus Michigan. It was a telecom case. And he says, you know, that Hour deference doctrine raises real profound sort of first principle questions about separating the tasks of writing, enforcing, and interpreting the law. And it was that opinion that really put us on the trajectory to where we are this year with the Kaiser case. It spurred an avalanche of law review articles, some opinions from Justice Thomas and others and lower court judges, all bringing us to this point. And one of the concerns that Justice Scalia raised from the start was this concern that, that agencies would deliberately write vague regulations so that they could sort of later reserve to themselves the ability to, to do what they really wanted to do from the start. And I guess that's a concern. My, my concern, though, is that our deference doesn't necessarily enable agencies to be dastardly so much as it enables them to be lazy. They don't have to think hard about what they want the regulation to say when they're writing it because they know they can fix it on the fly as they go. And so in Kaiser and in the Chevron cases and elsewhere, for me, the challenge is always with an eye to the law writer. What deference framework, either designed by the courts or by Congress, would force the agency to be its best version of itself when it's writing the regulation in the first place. 
That's that's interesting to hear, especially because we have all these other requirements of the Administrative Procedure Act that agencies kind of have to go through when they're writing the rulemaking. So I, I can imagine your scenario playing out where they say, look, we've got to do all these things. Every new specific thing we put in this rule, we're going to have to do some kind of benefit cost analysis. We're going to have to run it through this process. So if they can cut out some of those steps, save them a lot of time and energy. I want to take a step back because both of you have mentioned Chevron deference. And that is probably the form of deference that most of our listeners have heard about before. I think it's probably been more popularized in the news, probably largely because of Scalia, who who you mentioned earlier, Adam. What is Chevron deference? How is it similar to or different from our deference? And then if I can tack on an extra question here, is it also at risk of changing in this case? Is it possible that this case would say, look, not only is our deference got to modify a little bit, but we're going to revisit this whole idea of deference to agencies in general? Well, Jennifer already alluded to the big difference between Chevron and our. I mean, I'll get to Chevron in a second, but the key difference is our deference is a doctrine where you're deferring to the agency that also wrote the regulation. Chevron, you're deferring to the agency in interpreting the law that Congress wrote. So Chevron is the doctrine under which the court, when it's faced with the statute it has to interpret, it asks, does the statute have one and only one meaning? Is it, is it unambiguous, we like to say? If so, okay, we'll just apply the law. But if not, if the statute's ambiguous, as most regulatory statutes are today, the court says we're going to defer to the agency's reasonable interpretation of the statute. Now, of course, it gets a lot more complicated than that. That's why I spend, I think, four days of my administrative law class trudging through this. But on the whole, it's it's very much similar to our deference. But the premise of Chevron is that Congress sort of preferred or Congress intended for the agency to take the lead in interpreting these statutes. If Congress wrote a vague statute, it was creating space for the agency to fill with policy judgments or at least policy-laden interpretive judgments. And so our isn't directly connected to Chevron. The court could do away with our deference or radically modify it or, or whatever, and it won't directly affect Chevron. But this debate will have some sort of gravitational pull on Chevron because so much of the hour deference debate goes to what's a judge's duty, right? This point earlier about is, is deference really bias? And so to the extent that hour is refashioned with an eye to judicial independence or independent neutral judgment of a judge, that's going to have some gravitational pull on Chevron debates. Absolutely. And like Adam just said, this case is specifically about our deference. And in a really interesting kind of twist for us admin law nerds, the literal question before the court is, should we overturn our deference? Normally, it's just kind of when it comes to admin law cases, it's kind of hidden in several other issues. But the court is directly tackling this question in this case. I would be shocked to see any kind of statement on Chevron directly in an opinion or a decision on this case. But what will be interesting to see is, depending on what happens in the Kaiser case, the potential momentum to other deference doctrines, particularly to Chevron, but also to how states handle similar issues at an administrative law level. Because, of course, while all of us think of federal agencies in the federal administrative state, States have their own mini versions. And what's been interesting to watch recently is you've started to see some momentum in the states overturning kind of their version of deference to agencies, mostly Chevron-like deference at a state level. But you saw Arizona pass legislation almost exactly a year ago now getting rid of 
their state-level Chevron deference. You've seen a couple of other states follow suit shortly thereafter. And while at one point 36 states had some version of Chevron deference, it's been gradually trickling down to slightly fewer, and I think we're at about 30 or 32 now. There's a really good brief that was filed in the Kaiser case um, by a professor uh, up at Columbia Law School named Tom Merrill. And if I recall correctly, Merrill's argument was, yeah, ours should be, ours should be and can be modified, um, but it can be done in a way that won't affect Chevron because here's why Chevron is different. So pe- for listeners who are interested in how this all relates to Chevron, they really ought to take a look at that brief. You know, one last thing about the Kaiser case, what, another thing that makes it so interesting is that it comes out of the veterans context. And that's interesting not just because, you know, it's, it, it's veterans, but it's because veterans law has a, some rules of thumb that judges apply. We call them in law, we call them canons of construction. That's not canons like with a boom. It's canon C A. Important distinction because yeah. we're talking about veterans. Yeah, but they, can be, but they can be pretty, they can be pretty important. This idea in veterans law that you, you, judges should always construe where the law is in doubt, it's ambiguous, the judges should construe it in favor of veterans. This presumption that Congress, when it writes laws and the VA, when it writes regs, it does want to err on the side of generosity to our veterans for all the reasons dating back to the foundation of these things after the Civil War. And so what happens then when that sort of rule of thumb collides with Chevron? On the one hand, judges have a rule in, that, that basically defer in favor of the veteran. And then in the case here, because it's Chevron, it's deference in favor of the Veterans Affairs Department. And that's one of the reasons that this case was so salient. And it's not, I think, not a surprise, actually, that this issue came out of the Veterans Administration because you had this real conflict between the instincts and rules of judges when they interpret the law and um, this this sort of instinct in favor of agencies. And it's possible that we'll get a Chevron case someday out of a similar context for a similar reason. And it's interesting, too, because, again, you really have seen more conversation of these deference doctrines at a lower court level, at the district court and at the court of appeals, where I think that they probably feel more restricted by them to, to some degree. And so that tension comes about more more prevalently. And you've seen not a not a sweeping number, but a growing number of judges raise questions about the first principles behind these doctrines, including uh, when he was a court of appeals judge. Now, Justice Neil Gorsuch had raised questions about whether these doctrines were really the right approach to the administrative state for judges to be applying. In some ways, they're restrictive, these doctrines are, but in other ways, they're sort of liberating. Judges get to go home on time, right? They're weekend. <laughs> because if a statute, you know, a complex statute, complex regulation is ambiguous, well, then you just skip right to the punchline, which is, okay, we'll defer to the agency. But that then creates sort of a backlash. You saw a little bit of this in the oral argument, and the audio is already available online. Highly recommend your listeners, as soon as they finish this podcast, go to the, the Oye, O-Y-E-Z podcast and download the oral argument audio. Because you'll hear Justice Kavanaugh say, you know, in the conference room when judges in the lower courts, and he was on the D.C. Circuit, when they are deciding these cases, deference makes it very easy, maybe too easy. And that obviously bothered Kavanaugh a little bit. It bothered Gorsuch. Gorsuch on the on the 10th Circuit as a lower court judge raised real questions about deference in terms of almost due process, right? The right of the people to know what the law is and to get sort of unbiased, neutral adjudication. Now, there's very interesting divides on the court just within the conservative block. And you see some of this come out 
it's already evident in their writings before this case, but now just in oral argument, Justice Thomas has already announced that he thinks all of this needs to go away, our deference and Chevron deference. And Justice Gorsuch seems to be fairly close to that position. I mean, we'll see in this case, but he seems pretty close to Thomas. On the other hand, Chief Justice Roberts and I think Justice Kavanaugh, they've both you know, Roberts on the Supreme Court, Kavanaugh on the D.C. Circuit have wanted to trim these doctrines and recalibrate them, but they seem to be in more of a mend it, don't end it sort of place. Justice Alito, it's not clear at all where he is. He really is in the middle of this. So you get really interesting divisions among the conservative justices, which makes sense because we have to remember these doctrines really are of sort of conservative roots as much as progressive roots. Chevron was a Reagan-era case. There was, for the 70s into the 80s, constant micromanagement of Reagan and Ford and Nixon agencies by Democratic-appointed judges on the D.C. Circuit. And these deference doctrines tried to create space so that judges wouldn't micromanage the policy judgments of agencies. And so you have these interesting divisions with the instincts of of the various conservative judges. It'll be very interesting to see how this plays out in the opinions. And again, to something that Adam was alluding to, one of the other questions is what happens if we get rid of these doctrines and what happens if they they truly go away or how they're modified and whatnot for judges considering really technical issues. One of the things that, again, proponents of, of these doctrines, and particularly we saw this with some of the questions from some of the more liberal wing of the of the court is, you know, what what are we going to do when we get a highly technical case about a chemical compound and a judge has no idea what they are supposed to, about the specifics? They're, they rely on agency's expertise. That's part of the reason that they see the role of the administrative state and agencies. And so kind of raises this interesting question of, on the one hand, from a legal standpoint, there are, you know, due process questions. There are these questions of canons that may be in conflict with existing deference doctrines, but what would happen next if this truly went away? I have to admit, when I listened to the oral argument with those concerns, well, what are we judges going to do? And there's, there is a good point to this, right? The, the, the regulations are written in very esoteric terms. It's hard for a judge. But after more and more of these complaints, I kept feeling like the Godfather at the beginning of the first Godfather movie when, sorry if I'm getting obscure here, but when, when the, the, the singer Johnny Fontaine, the Frank Sinatra knockoff, he's in the Godfather's study and he's crying about how difficult he has it. And the Godfather finally gets fed up and he stands up and he says, act like a man and slaps him in the face. <laughs> and part of me wants to say, judge, you signed up for this, right? No one made you be a judge. Everybody knows judges have to deal with complex and sometimes really tedious cases. That's part of the deal. So uh, sometimes I, I, I'm sort of, you know, frustrated by the idea that judges couldn't handle this. It would be hard, but that's not to say judges can't handle this at all. There has to be some sort of role for the judge in all of this. And it can't just be policing the boundaries of whether an agency's interpretation of its own regulation is just ludicrous, right? Palpably ludicrous. I've come to, where I've come down on this for whatever it's worth is I do think it's time to get rid of our deference or radically rein it in. I'm not there on Chevron. On Chevron, I went from saying Chevron has problems to then sort of becoming anti-anti-Chevron. <laughs> and now I'm just, I've thrown back in, I'm just pro-Chevron because to get back to the beginning of Jennifer's point, the question is what comes after all of this, right? And sometimes I think what we should ask ourselves is the only thing worse than deference, like the, maybe the lack, the absence of deference altogether. 
And on our, I don't think it's the case because agencies can modify their interpretations. They can modify their rules. And not, by the way, not just through notice and comment. I mean, there's an entire carve out in the Administrative Procedure Act. It says a rule doesn't have to go through notice and comment if it's just an interpretive rule, if it does nothing more than just interpret. And if you look back at the, the debates in Congress when they unanimously passed the APA in 1946, they said, we don't need these interpretations to go through notice and comment because they'll get full judicial review at the end. Right? They'll get undeferential review. That's the key is you need either – I hate to use these like words, but ex-ante or ex-post <laughs> um, pr- protections. And you can make it very easy for agencies to re- to interpret and reinterpret their regulations. They don't have to go through notice and comment. There will just be judicial review at the end. And if you do that, I think, getting back to incentives – Here at Mercatus, we know incentives matter. What's the incentives to make the agency write the regulation with the most care up front? And I think it's getting rid of or radically reducing our deference. A couple of times you guys have mentioned kind of what comes next, what's coming down the pike. I want to focus on that. And I've got another kind of two-parter question here. One is just what's the timeline? So you mentioned oral arguments have happened. We're a couple of weeks, maybe three weeks past that by the time this this is published. So one, when do we actually find out what the justices think about the case and what their decision is? And then maybe the bigger question, the more interesting one is, let's say there's a big change. Our deference changes pretty significantly or it's gotten rid of entirely. What's the next step? Does Congress then, or do you all think, maybe this is putting on your your oracle hats and making guesses, but does, is Congress likely to say, okay, we need to clarify this in the absence of a longstanding deference? Are regulatory agencies, either at the federal or, to your point, Jennifer, at the state level, likely to say, okay, we really need to change the way we do these interpretations? So sort of what happens next? And then how do policymakers respond to that? Well, we can't give an exact date of when a decision will come down. What we know is it'll be sometime this summer, but it really, you know, until until we get to a shorter and shorter list of cases becomes harder to read the tea leaves about when exactly what date it'll come down on. I do think it is rather likely that we see some sort of significant change to our deference, whether it's going away altogether or whether it's, you know, a a modified version, some additional steps, some kind of reining in from the court of, of when and how this gets used. In terms of the possibility of of other actions as a result, we've seen some attempts in Congress to clarify administrative power or or kind of these deference doctrines, be it use of the Congressional Review Act, be it the proposal of the RAINS Act and some other kind of more review on the legislative side. But in general, those have not picked up significant momentum where it's likely that we would see a, a legislative change as a result of this. With regards to the agency, it's a big question. Um, as my work with Adam Thier and Hageman talks about, some of these soft law interpretive rules can actually be used for good to, you know, enable new technology to to come on board and to to have kind of a degree of certainty for things that might otherwise not be able to to get out the gate. On the other hand, they are certainly things that can be abused. There's there's a lot of question about how much agencies really consider 
the deference doctrines when they are writing the regulation. Some work by uh, Chris Walker out of Ohio State indicates that it might not be as much as some of us admin law nerds like to think. Um, uh, that you know the, the 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 bureaucrats in Washington aren't saying they're going. Oh, if I write this word instead of that word, then but that they are generally aware of how these things play out in court, and that that does kind of, for lack of a better term, give them a, a kind of safety a release valve if if something goes wrong. Yeah, now here, I, I, that's a great study, by the way, by Chris Walker and also Kent Barnett from Georgia. Although, you know, here at Mercatus, we ought to ask, does it matter that the the regulators don't know the names of the doctrines? I mean, in some ways, the impact of the doctrines gets sort of priced in, right, to the way these things are, are actually handled in court. Having listened to the oral argument, I, mean, I agree with Jennifer. This will be a case that won't be decided until probably closer to the end of the court's work, so early summer. If I had to guess, and now that I guess on, on record, I'll be wrong, <laughs> it seems to me that that the court will probably recalibrate the doctrine. The Justice Department offered some standards. The court didn't seem particularly impressed by them, but I think the court will try to put some some cabins, further limits and exceptions to our deference. I think Chief Justice Roberts is probably the one who's going to write the opinion. He's actually been one of the most interesting and most consequential justices on these administrative law issues. His opinions in the Obamacare cases really overshadow things he's done in other cases, including in one of the one of the the latter Obamacare cases, King v. Burwell, where he ruled in favor of the administration on these insurance exchange subsidies, but along the way created a humongous exception to Chevron deference. My guess is that Chief Justice Roberts will put together a broad coalition that maintains the core of our and Seminole Rock deference, but while putting some limitations on it. You'll get a concurrence or a dissent from Gorsuch or Thomas saying the court needs to go much, much further. You'll probably get a separate opinion from Kavanaugh, separate opinion from Breyer or Kagan. This court is really full of people who have studied this for a long time. Before Breyer was even on the Supreme Court, he wrote one of the most consequential law review articles on the question of deference back in about 1984. And so you're going to have interesting opinions from the justices, but I think in the end, the real outcome will be an opinion by Chief Justice Roberts, mending it but not ending it. And he said just a few years ago in a case called Decker, where this case again, this issue of our deference was bubbling up again, he said, this issue goes to, I think he said, quote, the, the heart of administrative law. That's true. And I think he'll, that's exactly why he's going to take it very seriously and try to steer the court through some treacherous, uh, treacherous waters on this. Well, with that, I think we'll have to leave our audience in suspense as we all wait to see what the Supreme Court decides this summer. But it sounds like administrative law and regulatory policy could look a little different next year, depending on what happens. So it's something we'll all keep an eye on. Jennifer and Adam, thanks so much for coming on the show. Where can our listeners go online to follow your work? So I'm on Twitter at at J.R. Huddles. And then I've also written a bit of a recap on the oral arguments and what we kind of saw there for our Mercatus blog, The Bridge, and then have a slightly more technical discussion of this case in Law 360 and one that's aimed more for those of us that think about this in a, a policy framework as opposed to an admin law framework on The Federalist. So at George Mason's law school, I not only teach, but I run a program, as you mentioned, the Center for the Study of the Administrative State. So all of the center's work can be found at administrativestate.gmu.edu. We've been very fortunate to have Jennifer and other Mercatus folks participate in our workshops and conferences. And I'm also a research fellow at the Hoover Institution, so all my writing can be found on my page at hoover.org. 
And as always, you can find me on Twitter at Chad M. Reese or email me at crease at mercatus.gmu.edu with any questions, comments, or episode ideas. Stick around for today's episode of What's on Tap coming up in just a minute, and we'll see you next time. Welcome to What's on Tap. I'm your host, Chad Reese, joined as always by co-host Kate Delanoy. Today we are tasting Devil's Backbone's Maybach. It is a little early for a beer named after May, but it's darn warm out, so I'm breaking out the spring beer. While I am pouring that, Kate, what do you got for us going on at Mercatus this week? Lots of great stuff, as we do every week. One of the things that I'm really excited about is a new booklet from Thomas Miller. It's How Do Small Dollar Non-Bank Loans Work? So these are things like payday, pawn, title loans. And this booklet does a really good job of just really breaking down what these are, why do consumers use them, why are they needed. So I would definitely encourage anybody who does any work on consumer credit issues to pick this up. It's coming out on April 24th. It's a good, easy read and really gives a great breakdown. Yeah, I'm, I'm a little biased. I've always liked our consumer credit stuff. I think it's some of the most important and interesting work we do. I know I'm a little bit of a FinReg nerd in that regard. But these loans are interesting. You got everything you mentioned, like payday. These are the, the kinds of small dollar loans that get a lot of people uh, either from paycheck to paycheck or that they use in, in place of emergency funding. Um, so it really affects a lot of people's everyday lives. Also releasing next week will be the conversations with Tyler with Margaret Atwood. We had a live taping of that here last week, and I can say it was really good, very funny. Um, so definitely encourage everybody to check that out. And she was around uh, for a little bit. Didn't she uh, hang out with some George Mason University students as part of that as well? She did. Yeah, she did a meet and greet with th- some of the folks who are getting their master's degree in fiction. So oh, that's awesome. Yeah, it was a it was a good chance for them to, to talk with her. And um, yeah, definitely encourage everyone to check out that conversation. And for the folks who are local, Tyler Cowan will be talking about his latest book on big business this week, tomorrow, Wednesday, April 17th, at Politics and Prose, the location on Connecticut Avenue. And he'll be having a conversation with Ed Luce of the Financial Times, and they'll be talking a little bit about our relationship with business and how our business is good for society. Well, I I shared the event on Facebook. So prepare to be inundated with invites from my fives of followers. Excellent. (laughs) (laughs) That gives us plenty to think about. Here in front of us right now, though, we have what I think is a tasty Maybach from Devil's Backbone. Again, that's just the name, Maybach. The name is the style. What are your thoughts? I like it. As you said, it's been warm, which has been wonderful. So this is definitely a great beer for sipping hanging out outside, playing some cornhole. I'm going to give it a four out of five. I'm actually in the exact same spot. I expected this to be lighter than it is, but it's it's not quite the summer beer yet, so it's a nice in-between. It's like a little, little heavier body, little, little biscuity, solid medium all-around beer. So I think four out of five is a really good example of, of the style. Devil's Backbone knocked it out of the park with this one. They did indeed. Well, thanks so much for, for bringing the beer. Thanks for coming on. Cheers. 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 